have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Are you interested in being a voice actor? Or are you already a voice actor wanting to level up your career? Then my voiceover coach can help. Elise Bowman and I have been working together and she has helped me take my game to the next level and find a whole new confidence behind the microphone. Go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E Coaches.com. She's a results-driven voiceover coach who works with you whether you are completely new to voiceover or you're a seasoned professional. She focuses on three areas. The craft of acting, the technical side, so she'll help you set up a home studio and you're going to be surprised at how inexpensive that can be. And the business side, you'll learn how to get a demo produced, how to submit to agents, and how to market yourself. The most fun part of it for me has not only been finding that new confidence, but also finding new things I can bring to characters for animation and video games. And like I said, just go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E Coaches.com. And remember... I know you hear me, and I want to hear from you, so let me know if you have any questions about my experience with Elise. Remember to connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at the Flynn Hendricks. Hey, this is Jimmy Street, host of the Live and in Color with Wolfie D podcast. Hear the life and times of professional wrestler Wolfie D. From his times in the territories with PG-13 to his times in WWE, ECW, WCW, TNA, and more. Nothing is off limits and nothing will be held back. Available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast formats. Man, oh man, we are back again for another exciting week. And I just want to take a minute and thank all of our new listeners and also thank our new sponsors that have hopped on board to the I Know You Hear Me podcast. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. The continued support and the continued interest in this podcast means the world to me, and it's more motivation to keep bringing you exciting guests like the one I've got here today. On the line, I've got a guy that was a part of the music industry, he was my manager, and I was his one-man gold mine for about four years when I was a professional wrestler, and now he's also the host of Live and in Color with Wolfie D. On the line, I've got Jimmy Street. Jimmy, how are you, man? What's up, buddy? How are you? Man, I am doing good. I'm just glad to have you on the line here. Yeah, man. I'm proud of you, dude. This podcast is uh, super cool, man. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm glad you're part of the podcasting world. Well, man, you uh, you kind of lit the fire under me to get this bad boy going, so I'm grateful for you that you did, and you guys were the first sponsors on here, too, so I'm eternally grateful for that, man. So we got a lot of ground to cover here tonight. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, I like to have passionate friends, you know, like we were in the wrestling business. Absolutely, um, man. Together is cool. Exactly. The the passion and the drive motivates everybody else to do better, too. So, I mean, it 
it's a synergy more than anything else. You always want to see your friends succeeding. And if they've got that passion and that drive, you know, it's like having a workout partner. You're going to be that much more motivated to work a little bit harder than you might do on your own. Man, it's a blessing in disguise. That's for sure. That's cool, man. I I like it when everybody eats. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. So one of the biggest things that I learned about you back when we first met, which we're going to get into all that here in just a little bit, but you were actually a part of the band Temple. Can you give me a little bit more of the backstory on that? And I know I had one of the CDs. We actually looked at using one of the songs on there on the local shows around here for us to use. But man, just tell me more about that because we never actually really got to sit down and dive deep into that what what started the whole band dynamic and what led you down that path bro how far back how long do we have as long as you want uh, so when i was growing up i was a kid i was a fan of two things no three things take that back i, I loved music i loved baseball and i loved professional wrestling mm-hmm. um and i always thought i could sing you know like as a kid you don't have a clue you can't sing and then you find out partially that you can't. <laughs> so I started out with some friends at school. I was like 12, 13, and I was born in a little town in southwest Virginia. It's named Lebanon, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I had friends at Lebanon High School with me. And so I got a guitar, I think, for Christmas or something. And then a friend of mine got a guitar and then we started kind of playing Nirvana covers. And so he was much more further along down the line. And so he taught me some Nirvana, Pearl Jam songs, you know, these kinds of things. And then I was like, you know, dude, I want to sing. Let's start a band. So we meet this other kid that moves to that same high school. Yeah. About the same time we're all trying to do this. And my cousin, and I have all these people that are around me that are, are musically talented. Yeah. And so we get we get together and we practice. And, and our drummer is like super, his parents were super religious. <laughs> and I'm singing and we're playing these Nirvana songs. And she's, well, that was the last time we got to play with that guy. Uh, his <laughs> mom and dad were like, <laughs> not happening. <laughs> But the blessing from that is that I, we recorded that and I heard my vocals. <laughs> and I was like, I can't sing. <laughs> I always felt like I was a front man, but I was not blessed with the ability that a front man requires in his vocal. I um, gotcha. So, long story short, all these people around me are playing guitar. I'm the least qualified guitar player. We needed a bass player. And so about 13 years old, I trade my guitar for a bass. My cousin, he teaches me how to play. And I pick up just from different things. And then I start to somewhat read music. Long story short, I played bass. And then I've been a bass player since. Now, I've played guitar and and other instruments. But anyway, what led to Temple was we all formed a band Mm -hmm. called Backyard Plaid. Yeah, that was a horrible name. Still sounds pretty cool in my book, though. Well, yeah, but I think we stole it from another band. <laughs> oh, so I gotcha. It was, kinda, it was like either their song or their album, and, and we took it and made our band's name out of it. So anyway, long story short, that band breaks up. We all go off to different towns for college and stuff like that. And so then the singer, Seth, the drummer, Robert, myself, 
and my cousin Jeremy, Jerho, as they called him, <laughs> we all start playing music together, kind of doing covers, but also writing our own stuff. And we were going into the scenes of like Bristol, Virginia, Bristol, Tennessee, where they had a really heavy punk hardcore heavy metal scene really yeah so it's a really great scene man and it still thrives to this day it's just so under uh, acknowledged yeah i had no and idea so, until you just mentioned it. i mean even passing through there i had no idea that it was more of that scene i figured it was more of like country yes. and southern rock area not to be stereotypical but well no you're not wrong but there's a great scene for heavy rock man um, oh nice really is, yeah, yeah. I mean, Fozzie, if you look at, like, Fozzie and all these other bands, that they always put Johnson City and Bristol on their uh, to-do list as far as touring goes. So, anyway, long story short, we go to Bristol. We get booked at a show. I'm, like, 16 years old. I shouldn't even be in this bar. <laughs> but the guy, they booked us anyway. And that was basically the beginning of Temple. We were very influenced by bands like Tool, Deftones. You know, they call it new metal, but it was like the hard rock of the time. You know? Right. Anyway, that that's the start of that. And then, long story short, we, we end up making making a record, and I think I gave that to you. You did? Got to, got to tour a bunch, and it was a lot of fun. So. so, when that process starts, what was the dynamic like with you guys, like, creating your own music did you have one person in the band that would do that was it a group effort was there a lot of butting heads with that how was that for you uh, guys i mean yes and no you know you have your song but but as far as the music writing goes you know our singer seth uh, wrote a lot of the lyrics mm -hmm. um, i would say the 95 percent of his lyrics were his own but we all kind of jammed I hate that term, but we all jammed and wrote together and worked together to write songs. We were literally getting off work and practicing every day. So, That's I mean, some drive. We, yeah, and we got really good kind of fast because we were so practicing. We were just practicing, practicing, practicing mm -hmm. all the time because we didn't have decades of playing behind us to form quality easily so what we did is we figured out we had to play catch-up and we played and played and practiced and practiced and so then you know in those practices that's where songs would come about we slowly did covers all together you know this is like 96 by 97 we were not no longer playing any covers other than novelty ones like Amy yeah ant farm or they covered uh, Smooth Criminal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lift Biscuit covered Faith. All the heavy, like, rock bands were trying to do, like, you know, like, novelty covers almost. We did Unbelievable by e EMF. Yo, Unbelievable. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but you couldn't sing. I <laughs> can't. Don't, don't start that again. And so, long story short, we, we wanted to do you know, just novelty covers just to kind of be funny, but mostly we were solely original songs. And so that is a step in its own, whereas we stepped out from the shadow of, of trying to draw a crowd because of the songs 
Mm-hmm. We wanted to draw a cat crowd because of our name and our band. And, and it took, I mean, it was a big step at that time because we wanted to do that. Essentially, once we put that band together, we were like focused. This was our goal. And, and it, it was a leap of faith for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> How old were you when you guys actually started touring? And did you have an agent or representation that would book these gigs and events for you? Or was that all just teamwork from all four of you guys? Well, it starts out teamwork from all of us. You know, we were 17, 18. My cousin Jeremy was older. He was like two or three years older. So typically he was always legal to get into bars, but we were not, even though we were playing the bars. They didn't ever card the band. It was like a little inside thing. Yeah, it kind of subverted the bar, the, the bouncer at the door because we were <laughs> in the band. So <laughs> right, a right. Guitar, a guitar was the same as an ID, I guess, to them. But anyway, yeah, so 17, 18, the, the, all of us, 96 graduates of high school, 97. And honestly, as soon as our singer and drummer were out of high school, we were touring regionally. I mean, we would go South Carolina, Tennessee, North Carolina, West Virginia, Maryland, D.C., Virginia, that area, Kentucky, that area, we would go, I mean, honestly, as quickly as we could. And then it spread out to further states after we started networking. I mean, honestly, touring, we were touring from the time we were 18. We bought our drummer's stepfather he had a van mm-hmm. like a, it was like a, a leisure van like the yeah. kind families would have with vcrs in them and oh everything. nice nice and we were pimping man but it, <laughs> it, it was it was a it was horrible dude because then we realized we had to have insurance and we had to have oh. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was like an extra thing to add on to an expense that we really didn't have the money for but um, right it was a blast, man. Uh, but anyway, 17, 18, we were touring. But really, the full-time touring happened, I would say, around 19 or 20. That's when we were going pretty hardcore at it. We would work a job. Our singer would work at a video store. I would work at a record store. Mm-hmm. And then we would go touring and then come back and be working at the same record store. Just a job to kind of be between us when we weren't on tour, essentially. Gotcha. Now, I know I've only met your parents, I think, twice when we made a loop up to uh, Virginia and West Virginia. We stayed at their house on the way up, and then we met them for lunch on the way back. And they always seemed like they were very supportive of everything you were getting involved in. Was there any concern or any pushback from them with you touring and traveling at this young age? (laughs) Dropping out of college. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They supported me from afar, bro. I'll be honest. Later on at that time when you met them, they had kind of come to terms with a few more things in my life. I'll be honest, man. They really did support me from the rip. I hate to say it. Things are still kind of weird about my dreams to this day with my family. And I think it's just how they are. But yeah, as far as like support now, monetarily, they bought me my first base. Oh, yeah. But I never felt like from them that they really they ever saw me it it was like they already figured it out for me and said this isn't going to work for him and yes i should have gotten that degree a hundred percent kids always get the degree then live the dream Mm -hmm. um but we'll get into this in a second but leading up to that my dad i think appreciated the fact 
that I was doing something that he could never do. He never ever tried. He loves music. That's where I right. got my love of music from. <clears throat> but he never had the balls to go out and do it. And he told me that. And he said, you know, I appreciate that you're doing this. I always wanted to do this. And I never had the gut. And I was like, well, that's cool. And I lived on that, bro. I swear, I lived on that for years. Because after that, it was like, my parents are really Christian. I am a Christian, but my parents are really Christian. I understand. And, you know, they never go to bars. They're not drinkers. And so they were never going to be in areas that we were. So to come see us was not, wasn't in the cards. Right. Um, it would have to be a real weird experience for them to come. It, it was tough. I've talked to my wife about this, and she she's kind of like, God can't believe that you know but it's just how my family was i know they love me i know yeah you know like i said you met them at a different time i'll talk we'll talk about that in a minute but honestly dude i never truly felt it from the start i hate to say that i told you i was gonna be real man yep and (laughs) hey i appreciate you being that open about it i mean i can honestly say that i can relate with that with the wrestling that's going to come in here in a little bit you know i think everybody has the stereotypical picture of what it means to grow up and our parents see it as what they did, whether, you know, they want you to follow in their footsteps or they want you to go beyond because they didn't go to college, but they want you to, or whatever it may be. And if you go off that beaten path, that's something that not a lot of people tend to to succeed at. I think they put up their red flags and their barriers because they don't want to see their child fail, but everybody processes that differently. But I mean, the fact that they still supported you, even if it was from a distance, and the fact that your dad did have that conversation with you and tell you still speaks volumes to y'all's relationship in the big picture, though. Oh, totally. And I, like I said, dude, I lived on those words for years, man. I really did. Absolutely. Uh, I, now, I sound like this really spoiled kid. I grew up, my parents were still together. They're still together to this day. They're coming up on their 50th wedding anniversary. <sighs> that's you know, rare, man. Brother. That's rare. Yeah, and they've all, they were middle-class family never really had to struggle i i I don't want to sound like i'm trying to find (laughs) something sad to talk about because so many people had it worse than i have i get it we tend to make our own things sometimes we're not struggling in other ways yep i can attest to that but but i do love my family and if that comes across the other way i definitely want it to be known that i love them and they uh and i can attest to that yeah so I do have to ask, though, because I know we've, we've kind of teased the wrestling a little bit. On your album that you gave me, uh, you actually had a song, I believe it was called Submission, that you said that yeah. you guys had written for uh, Dean Malenko to possibly use his entrance music in ECW. Did yeah. you guys yeah. actually have a connection with them, or was that something you were just kind of hoping they would notice? Had there been talks between you guys, or what was the story there? Okay, get this, bro. Mm-hmm. So we wrote that song specifically for Dean Malenko because we wanted, we thought this song would be perfect for him. He was a no nonsense, no frills, badass. Yep, the Ice Man. Yeah, and he he was a submission based wrestler, and so we wrote this song with the idea that it was like a build up, and I even timed like wrestling entrances for our entrance for it to where it's like okay because a lot of times monday night we were watching raw and nitro Mm -hmm. on on 
music break. <laughs> so we would take a break and, you know, the, one of them would smoke a cigarette or something and I would be watching wrestling. I'm like, okay, what's on Nitro right now? What's on Raw? So we, we had the idea for him. And so I bought a t-shirt. I bought a Tommy Dreamer from ECW. And at this time, they were so mom and pop that we've all heard about now. It's crazy. We ended up, the shirt never came. And like the money went through, everything was cleared. I think the check cleared, mm-hmm. but the shirt never came. So I call this number that was like a customer service number. And this sweet older lady with a very strong New York accent answered. And she was the nicest lady. And I talked to her for like 30 minutes, dude, I swear. And she says, well, I will make sure someone gets back to you in a very short time. And so come to find out that's Paul Heyman's mom. (laughs) (laughs) So I get a call back and it's another very strong New York accent. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very recognizable one, but I didn't recognize it at the time. I had bought my brother a Taz t-shirt and I bought my, myself a Tommy Dreamer t-shirt. And I get to talking to him and the guy calls back and he's, he's like, yeah, 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 we'll get that to you, you know? Um, and, and I'm so sorry about that. And I'm like, Hey, why don't I get you on the line here? Why don't I ask you a question? I don't know if this is your department, but how do you give music or how do you enter music for a, a, a wrestler to come out to? And he was like, uh, well, who are you thinking? <laughs> and I'm like, well, we wrote a song for Dean Malenko, and uh, we want Dean Malenko to come out to this music. And he was like, oh, Dean, yeah, Dean's a good, Dean's a good guy. Dean's a good wrestler. Turns out that it, it was Taz that I was talking to. <laughs> and, and you remember that show for Porter that Tommy Dreamer was on that we worked? Yep, that, I think we had a six-man that night. Yeah, six-man... So Tommy had worked Jerry Lawler on that show, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, Tommy's in that middle section of that area, and we were always in the normal dressing room. Yep. So Tommy, I sneak in there, and I'm like, Tommy, I gotta ask you this, man. Back a few years back, I, I tried to give music for Dean Malenko to come out, and long story short, the reason Dean Malenko didn't get the music is because he had moved to WCW, and so. At that point, it was like a totally different ballgame. That's why Dean never even probably heard the music. Right. But I see these to ECW headquarters and everything. God knows what happened to them. Who knows? But, they're in the Heyman family uh, basement? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or maybe they're just posters somewhere or something. <laughs> but anyway, he was like, the lady that answered, that would have been his mom. And I, that, Okay, that blew my mind. And the number that called back, there was a name on the number caller ID, Richard Heyman. And that was his dad. And he was like, that would have been Taz. He was like, it was either been me or Taz. And I was like, well, it wasn't you. So, and and then I hear it and it's Taz. And so, yeah, I talked to Taz for like 20 minutes about my band. That's absolutely <laughs> insane. Yeah. Anyway, he was probably, and I kept that name on the caller ID for dude, like four years, man. Oh, of course. Um, and, and it was a trip, dude. It was a trip. Anyway, so going happened though. <laughs> either I mean that's still a pretty cool experience and an awesome story to share. I mean that's just that's not something everybody gets to say. No, no, and we were so excited, man. 
I remember talking to the guys at practice, and they were like, "Heck yeah, man, dude, that's gonna be so awesome!" Our song on ECW, and yeah, just never happened. Nah, it's like it's right there, but you you don't want to get your hopes up too much. But I mean, either way, man, that's still a pretty awesome story. Yeah. And, and okay, to, to alter back a little bit to your first question, you said, did we have management? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we did. Our first manager was us. We basically did it all. Our second manager that we actually paid was a guy named Dave Inscore. Come to find out he's passed away. I don't know why. But we paid him for two months. He got us on some cool things. He actually liaisoned us to get the record made that I gave you. But... Come to find out, in a meeting, he admitted that he had been using the money we were paying him to put up his arm. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, so we fired him. And then we had other managers, but mostly people, it was just better to have people to help you that were not you. So you could represent from another, you know, you could have someone else represent you, much like a manager or an agent, but they were cool. That Dave was, and I hate to say it bad. He's passed away. Um, but he was the only bad scenario for us there as far as management. I gotcha. So (laughs) in that story, what, um, what was it like when the band finally decided to just, uh, you know, go their separate ways? Was that a mutual split? Was there something that led to that? And apparently my dog didn't like me asking that question, but, We'll keep trudging forward anyway. Yeah, so what happened, we get a record deal, Mm -hmm. an offer, okay? And Attack Records, at the time, it was a subsidiary of BMI, or EMI, Capital. They had a few well-known artists, like Morrissey and some other people at that time. Uh, That was the first offer we received. And we were kind of like figuring out how to do all this, because we were going to have to go to New York to record... And guitar player, my cousin, and I love him dearly. He's like literally one of my musical idols, but he was battling some demons at that time. You know, like I say on the podcast with Wolfie, I am no way judgment police, you know, right. I've been through too much stuff on my own to judge anyone else. So we would end up going to practice and he wouldn't show up. And then he would be off with either the girlfriend he was with or, in other situations, he was letting demons take over. So we ended up firing him. And so then our singer is starting to play more guitar. Mm-hmm. So we were going to be like a three-piece, basically. The singer, guitar, he would be the guitar player, the drummer. And we were going to try to make it on our, as a three-piece. We, we get together one night at practice. And Robert, we're getting close to signing this deal, man. Like, it was about to be good and then long story short what happens is robert the drummer who again is my homie i i I miss him i don't see him enough for really get to see him ever anymore he says guys i I can't do this i don't want to sign anything that contractually obligates me to be with uh you guys it's nothing personal i just don't want to commit something like this i think he just got cold feet and so we had to call then our acting manager at the time her name was brandy she was a sweet lady she was actually the manager of the record store that i was working at oh man (laughs) anyway long story short she goes and and like you know they're ready to do this let's sign the papers we had a lawyer looking over Mm -hmm. like everything was processing and going and then 
boom, our drummer quit. Oh. And so he had to then call back to them and say, look, can't do it. Well, they're like, this is not something you can sit on. This has to happen. And the, we didn't have a way to do it. So we put them, I don't know how we did it. And, and my mind is a little, my memory is a little foggy on this, but I don't know how we did it. I called a friend of mine who I'd known from college. Chris White is his name. He's literally the best, one of the best musicians as far as all around mm-hmm. musicians I've ever known in my life, honestly, straight up. I called Chris and I'm like, dude, he said, we need a drummer. We've got shows booked and our drummer quit. He was like, okay, dude. I'm like, well, what are you doing? He was like, yeah, man, that's awesome. I'll, I'll come down and j- join you. So he comes down and it's like nothing had stopped. It was perfect. He fit in like a glove. He had already had one of the CDs. He basically is one of those musicians that can learn by just almost osmosis. Yeah. <laughs> just having the CD near him, he knew how to play it all. Man, that's <laughs> um, impressive. He is amazing. Long story short, he came up and we jammed. Seth was a decent guitar player, and we decided that to be a heavier band, you need that full guitar tone sound. Yeah. So we added Chris White, had a friend named Chris Holston, and they he, he came up and jammed. And then like two weeks later, we played one of the biggest shows we ever played in front of like 5,000 people. We up, yeah, we opened up for Local H. They were a decently known band that mm-hmm. they had that copacetic song or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. And very long story long on this one. We played that show with new members and everything's going great, but then the record deal kind of falls apart and it didn't end up going through with that offer. And then so we were licking our wounds, but then we just decided not to slow down. And so then that those guys, we all took over Temple with the two new members and took over the dates we needed to play and kept playing and kept touring on that record. And yeah. So anyway, (laughs) was was there any heat or tension with the two members that dropped out? Was there any kind of awkwardness or was it just kind of, they understood because they didn't want to commit to everything. So you guys were free to do what you wanted. Well, Robert went away. He ended up, I don't know what happened to him. I think he got married. He became a cop. We lost touch with Robert, uh, sadly. But Jeremy is my cousin, and yes, there was hard times with us, Mm. uh, unfortunately. I love that dude. I love him. I would take a bullet for him as of right now. No question. Uh, He was my musical hero, but he had let me down, and I held it really hard against him. It It wasn't cool of me to do that. But I did. I held it against him. And it was tough for a few years. And then one year at my granny's house for Thanksgiving, we just started talking. And and it's been cool ever since. But it was ugly for a minute because I held it against him. That was all our dream. I understand that. You know, he ditched on us, man. Let's be honest. If we're being 100% open and human, in a situation like that, it would be very hard to not harbor some sort of resentment because again, like you said, that was everybody's dream. So in a sense, that was putting the yeah. roadblock on the way to your dream. So I mean, right. I and I get that. Too many of us try to be rock star before we can be rock star. You know what I mean? Yep. And he he was living the rock star life, but wasn't living up to why he became a rock star. So he was partying too much. You've seen it in wrestling. Oh times. yeah. 
that's why wrestling and, and rock and roll are so similar, dude. It really, I mean, like I remember talking to you about this. Yep. On ride car trips, I'm like, dude, it is so similar. You guys don't even understand, man. It, it, you all get in a car. You don't get enough sleep. You don't get <laughs> Still enough don't. shower. And you drive far to get less money than you paid to get there. You really just do it to feed an addiction more than you do to actually get paid, you know? I mean, if you get lucky and get, you know, start getting those bigger paydays, that's one thing. But, you know, I mean, in 11 years that I did it, I can think on one hand where I actually, maybe two hands, where I actually came out more than breaking even or in the red. It was more to feed the addiction more than anything else. No, you're, you're exactly right, dude. If you look at it in that way, it's totally an addiction, first mm-hmm. off. I mean, anytime that you you feed that ego, which is the biggest, <laughs> of, you know, it's the biggest addict taker. Ego can make you, it can really mess with you, man. Dude, it you can. Know, it can. <laughs> it's a hard thing to shut off, too. And we're going to come back to that here in just a second because... We both have a lot of stories as far as that's going to go. But one of the biggest For questions sure. I really want to know the answer to is how far after the band experience and everything, with everything going on now, we might be jumping ahead a little bit. You said the record deal fell through. What led right. to the eventual breakup? And then where does Ken Steele come into the picture for you as far as getting into the wrestling business after that? Well, that's actually a great time, dude, because at this same time, we the band, the, the Temple, I always call it Temple Point 2.0, mm-hmm. um, because it was the second iteration of the band. We had really kind of done as much as we could do without doing a new album. It was going to be tough, because we, we could tour and do all the same haunts we had played, but honestly, man, if we weren't making new music, it really wasn't going anywhere, so... We were writing songs, but it felt like the the goal had been, you know, I don't know. When you 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 think you're going to a to the end of the race with the same car, and it's like you're driving in a different car, mm-hmm. you start to question things. So anyway, we ended up playing with those guys. Then I would say around like '99. This was just before Y2K. 99 was a huge year for me musically. And we were playing a ton, like every every week we were going and trying to play somewhere, honestly. And so I remember I had taken a job working at my then ex's record store in the mall in Christiansburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, what was it called? Wade. It was Wade. It was, they were related to disc jockey i think somehow or fye and ken would come in there and like i would just see him and i'm like that dude looks like a wrestler you know yeah and he would come in with his tag team partner who was even more of a wrestler looking dude and kenny was buff jack like jermaine sevens oh yeah i've seen the pictures and (laughs) i started talking to him and i'm like you look like this guy or whatever and he was like, oh, that's, that's funny. And they just laughed. And then the next time they came in, I got to talking to him more. But he was talking to me about music. Mm-hmm. So I turned him on to some music. And 
He always loved Black Sabbath. God, God loved Ken, man. I could cry right now just thinking about that brother. You know, he was such a part of my life for so long, and he honestly was like one of the ears to hear me through some stuff. And so Kenny came in, and I saw him at a show, a show he was performing on. Mm-hmm. It was a show like Greg the Hammer Valentine, Primetime Brian Lee, the uh, Ivan Koloff, the Rock and Roll Express with Kid Cash as their third. Wow. He was like David Jericho, I think, or something at that time. Who else, man? Like, so many big names were on this show. And it was at a pretty, it was like in the Radford University gymnasium. Mm hmm. And Kenny and his tag team partner, they basically looked like Kenny, but in tag team form. So it was another dude dressing like Kenny. Man. And they, yeah, they were like, the outlaws or the roughnecks i can't remember exactly i'm ashamed to say that anyway they wrestled and then i saw him again and i was like yeah dude i saw you the other night and he was like yeah thank you for coming out you know kenny would always say funny things he would be like you know well did you see how bad i made that other guy look or something (laughs) you know i can hear him saying that too you know it was always like a joke but also like kind of a little bit serious you know <laughs> so we just start talking and more and more and more and more we're talking and i'm stopping i'm like dude i don't want to talk anything about music i want to talk wrestling <laughs> <laughs> so we kept in touch and so you know like he would come to my band my next band show after temple i was in a band with the guys that came up and helped temple out Long story short, our singer got arrested on some stuff. I don't want to get into that. No, you're fine. He had to, he had to go to jail for a little bit. And the, so we break Temple up at that point. Temple breaks. Okay. Then uh, then Chris and Chris and myself, we start another band in the same genre as Temple. But it, it was This Machine uh, was the name of that band. By the way, uh, James Rock Street on YouTube. If you look it up, you can hear all this music. I've uploaded every bit of the music I've ever done in my life on YouTube. So go check it out. And I'll have that linked in the show notes too. Thanks, buddy. James Rock Street on YouTube. So we end up going and uh, uh, we're playing together. And at the same time, I'm building this friendship with Kenny. So I would go to a show with him and hang out with him and watch the show and then come home and then he would come to one of our shows and then we just were becoming better and better friends. Then after this machine, I wasn't really getting anything out of a heavy metal scene anymore. It was kind of to me, I love hard rock and stuff, but it's not like my first favorite. So I started playing more guitar and writing music on my own. And I would come up with these songs that were nothing like this machine or temple or anything. And I didn't have any outlet for them. In Blacksburg at Virginia Tech, where we, we were all there, my friends Phil and Tom were friends from high school as well, weirdly enough. They were living in Blacksburg, and we started a band that turned into the band called The Greatest. And so the reason I'm saying this is because Kenny and my friendship encompasses from the end of Temple to me leaving for Nashville um, through, and so I'm kind of giving you that history of the bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the greatest is the reason we moved to Nashville. We had a little deal and working with that, and people were looking at us and having we were having a good time with that. 
long story short, about 2003, 2004, Kenny is wrestling full time and I am working the, the music as heavy as, as I can. Then, you know, around that time, I'd still been going to shows and I'd talk to him and I'm like, dude, he was like, you need to be a referee. And I'm like, I don't want to be a referee. That's boring. He was like, but it's so important to the mat. And I'm like, yeah, it's boring. <laughs> Come to find out, it is very important. 100%. As we all, you know, as we all know. But I wanted to be a manager. He was like, I'd rather you just train and become a wrestler. And I'm like, I don't want to be a wrestler, dude. I mean, I can't commit to that. I'm still trying to do this music thing. He was like, well, you still need to learn some stuff, whatever you do. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And so I would go to see him at his place in Floyd, Virginia, that he had trained. He's trained people to wrestle. And I would do small things like back bumps and mm-hmm. learn how to take and take a punch and throw a punch. And he had me do the Ric Flair thing with the string. The main thing was he, he wanted to work on this, this character <laughs> that ended up becoming what I did. And so really from the time, I would say about 2002 or so to 2004, when I left Blacksburg, I was kind of working with him on that. Then also playing music. And also I had just gotten married to my first wife Mm -hmm. and we were both too young. We were like 21, 20, 21, too too early for marriage, man. I don't want to get off the track here, but long story short, Kenny got me into the business, and it wasn't until really the time that I met you that I was doing it of any kind of level. Uh, right. To put that in perspective, you said you, uh, you'd you done that till 2004. We didn't meet until the tail end of 2011, and right. the yeah. first time I saw you out of character, I was actually leaving that show. <laughs> And I didn't even recognize you outside. I didn't even put two and two together until the next week. But did you keep in touch with Kenny through that seven-year period where, where you obviously moved and then yeah. you started getting back into the business? Did you talk to him or walk me through moving, like when you came to Nashville, how you got connected with the NWA main event shows, and then just how everything started falling into place there? 2004, my marriage is in shambles. I committed so much more to music she had her own issues i don't want to call anybody out on this right right Um, but she was not a great wife i was not a great husband i felt like the only way to get where i wanted to be musically was to focus 100 percent of my focus on that and i i I didn't know any other way to do it i did i understand we're young and we're stubborn right so I knew that the percentage was growing smaller. You know, I'd heard people say 90% of bands fail. You know, they don't make the big cut. Mm-hmm. In all reality, dude, it's more like 95%. I could believe that. <laughs> be I could easily believe you know, that. This was also at the time I owned a piece of a record store. This was also at the time that record stores were closing because Napster and... and CD burning was, was rampant. Yep. And the iPods, I think, were just starting to become a thing, too. Exactly. And I remember having a the co-owner of my... He was at the store, and I was playing our music on an iPod. He was like, what the hell? You know, what is that? Why would you even have that in here? 
that's stealing our business. And I'm like, yeah, dude, they got to buy the music to put it on there. And he was like, no, they don't. They're, nobody's buying music. And he was just in a really bad place financially. Um, so tensions are high. Yeah. And so he just would, would get ticked off at the stuff. So long story short, I don't want to get into all that crap. But No, you're fine. He, yeah, I would stay with Kenny. I would stay in touch with Kenny. I would talk to him once a week, usually calling because texting wasn't as popular at that point. Right, uh, ten cents a text or something like that was the was the norm back then. Or, or you had to type a million times. Yeah, hit the key four times to get the letter S. So we would end up like going, and I would come to North Carolina and work. When I would have like a weekend off from music, mm-hmm. I would drive from Nashville and come to North Carolina and work a show. And at first I was doing this character called the boss and I was just the boss. Nobody, I didn't have a name. And then he turned me into the guy that became with you there, but I don't want to jump onto that yet. Right. Right. I then then met Aaron Camaro. I was working part-time jobs. I worked at the great escape in Nashville. Mm Mm-hmm. And I met Aaron Camara there, and I was just like, this dude has to be, oh, no, that's what it was. I had seen Aaron Camaro at a stall. He was like, I went to watch a stall taping, and yep. he was the MC, I guess, for stall. Is that right? He was the he was the ring announcer at one point, but he did so many shows around the Nashville area that it, it, it's yeah. honestly hard to keep up. And I think he's still doing some here and there from what I've heard, but... The one thing you said that kind of, I feel like, make it glossed over is you look at the guy and you just automatically think, he's got to be involved in wrestling somehow. So He's doing something. Yeah. yeah. This dude is, is doing something in wrestling. He's just like screams wrestling entertainer somehow. Absolutely. Um, so I talked to him at The Great Escape, and I would talk to Hot Rod Biggs. I would talk to LT Falk. I would talk to Tony Falk. I would talk to people that they would bring in. Mm-hmm. And I would just jack their ears off about wrestling because that's all I wanted to hear about. Music was like my day job. You know, I don't want to talk about music with people. And that wasn't the greatest for a record store job, but still. So I'm talking to them. And so Aaron comes in and he's like, you know, man, I'm doing a show, man, uh, over in East Nashville, man. And I'm like, wow like he was like yeah man you ought to come out to it sometime and i'm like aaron dude okay i would love to i didn't know there was any wrestling over there right and he was like oh uh, yeah and i was like well you know i've been doing this thing down in north carolina with my friends called the boss and i was also doing this arabic gimmick and he said really man and so he took me one night because he had the book or was trying to get the book. I remember it. Not at at, at NWA main event, but there was another place. And it had like white trash and... and Oh, it was HWA out in Laverne. And that was a... Good Lord, that was a cluster of just wasted potential. What a scary place. Yeah, I've seen some fights there. This is my very first time in Nashville wrestling. And he takes me there. And I'm like, he was like, dude, I want you to work the boys. He was like, you need to act like you work for CW Public Access and you're coming to scout the HWA because I want the book at the show. And if I can bring in the CWA, you know, the CW 
a suit from CW and act like I'm going to get them on TV. They're going to give me the book. And I'm like, yeah, dude, sure, why not? And we all meet up at Aaron's place, and he gets me, Andrew Becker, Cad Hyatt. I, I'll be honest, dude, I don't like Becker. I never have. I never will. And I'll be cool with saying this on air. I just don't like the dude. <laughs> I never had a problem with him, but I know a lot of people. It was uh, it was either an acquired taste or he just rubbed people the wrong way, you know? Yeah, he was a professional student. I never knew him not to be in college. And hey, I'm sure his IQ is probably off the chart. You can tell the dude is intelligent and has a lot oh, of yeah. But there, there was a certain style about him that he and I never clicked. Anyway, I'll just say it. Never liked him. I might like him now, but I would have to kind of refresh things with him. Right, right. Um, anyway, we all go in there. Andrew Becker's running the camcorder. Chad Hyatt's doing Super Barney. And they introduce Ugh. me as the boss. And Aaron, Aaron gives me the microphone. And I'm like, I've never done this, dude, but okay. And I just rattle off some stuff, talking about, you know, we may be bringing TV to Laverne and Hoddaddy and all this stuff. And, dude, I came back to the locker room, and I'm sitting there, and all these guys are, like, talking to me, like, yeah, man, I don't know about this place, dude, but I got a place you could go to to get on TV. This would be the way to go. <laughs> Everybody was trying to get their own angle with me. <laughs> no, I had no stroke whatsoever. <laughs> the easiest people to work are the boys, man. That's, uh, that's I don't know if that's sad, scary, or what, but... Yeah, anyway, I said, Aaron, I do this other gimmick, Prince Omar Alcazan. I think it was just Prince Omar at this time. Yep. And then... Kenny and I had talked, and we added Alcazan later. And then I think it became the corporation when you started managing me and uh, me and Seven together. Yeah, exactly. It was the it was the the Prince Orm, the Alcazan Corporation. Yep. And so my first guy that I managed uh, was Seven. They brought me in at the same time they were bringing Seven. Aaron was telling me this. He was like, you know, Seven's coming back to us. He's been down in Georgia. And I was like, I don't know who Seven is, but cool and he showed me a picture and i was like my god why is this guy not working for tna or somebody um still wonder that still wonder that yeah i mean he's jacked to the gills and he's 15 minutes from the studio yeah had a great look and a cool gimmick anyway he says i'm gonna have you manage him and you'll introduce you'll be the you'll be introducing both well he takes me to meet porter rest his soul porter gave me that weird limp wrestler handshake two finger uh, what's funny though is kenny had taught me that handshake mm-hmm. and i gave it back to him because i didn't know that at that time and then you or, or seven or somebody smartened me up to say hey dude shake a hand i think that was me yeah shake a hand man because <laughs> i think like, don't you I had to tell you that, and then I think I also had to tell Joe Carroll that because he came in around the same time, and nobody had smartened him up to it at all. So it was like, yeah. dude, I don't want you to go through the same things I did when I came in because nobody told me yeah. either. So there you go, yeah. you know. So they introduced me at end and thank you for that, by the way. In the, <laughs> in, at NWA, they introduced me, but all they introduced me is is this rich guy who's a spectator. And they sit me directly beside Chicken Hat. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I forgot I, that. Chicken Hat, Chicken Hat was, was a legend and is a legend. And I hope he's in good 
Jake wherever he is right and if, now. If we can take a quick little sidebar just to explain who Chicken Hat is, he is 100% one of the most diehard wrestling fans that this area has ever seen. Right. Full disclosure, he is mentally disabled from an accident that he had, but he's still able to make it to all these shows, or he was before COVID and everything started happening. And this guy would get so into it. If you were a good guy, he was your biggest fan. If you were a bad guy, there were multiple people that either got spit on, got swung at, or got into physical altercations with this guy, and they had no choice but to protect themselves. But this guy believed everything you did 100%. Yeah, totally. He was the last great, fan in my yes. opinion he was not smart and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way i mean that he was not a smart fan he hadn't had a peek behind the curtain exactly and that was what i heard too much was too many people were coming out of the stands backstage you know yep. anyway i'm seeing looks like chicken hat you had wrestled someone and i was like that's the dude he's got it right there i need him in my stable and Aaron, I talked to Aaron, and I'm and, and I remember you and I looking at each other. I don't care to sound questionable here in any way. I felt like it was something almost like a relationship, man. Like you didn't know, know that, but dang, <laughs> you know, like I was like this dude. I, I, I feel a kinship in this guy. It was like a an electricity, and I said, "This kid has got something, man." I was like, and then I go to Aaron, and he was like. Yeah, maybe not. How about this guy? And I'm like, no, dude, I want to manage Dyron. He was like, he doesn't need a man. And I'm like, yeah, but that's the beauty of it. Neither did Tully. Yeah, Seven has to have a manager because he doesn't pump. Okay? But Dyron doesn't need that. And then Dyron can... Dyron doesn't need me, per se, for the same reasons that Seven does. So it gives... Different dynamics. Different dynamics for both of them. So I would come out there... I didn't even have to talk to you. I would say something, you would finish it all off, and but I would keep more with you. With Seven, I would do more talking, and then Seven would destroy him. Right. Because, I mean, I'm 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, on a good day, or depending on what pair of boots I was wearing, 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, but, right. again, we right. came up with combinations of stuff like the shake and bake or whatever it right. was, and, like, the dynamic, you even helped me win and retire the NWA Mid-American X Division title after we fought tooth and nail to get put together. And the dynamic there was something like, we had people trying to rush us in the ring when you helped me win that. Whereas with a guy like Seven, you were out there pretty much just, you know, like as the the mouthpiece, he kicks a chair into a guy's face. That's it. Yeah, I was dressing on a salad for Seven. You and I were more like a tag team almost. In oh, yeah. Team, you know? That came uh, later, but we'll get to that soon. For sure. And that's pretty much how I got to, you know, NWA and Nashville Wrestling. And so Kenny, from afar, is like, yeah, that sounds stupid. Don't do that anymore. And I would kind of give him the rundown. He would actually get to where if I didn't call him after a show, he was calling me. Oh, <laughs> man. He was like, how'd the show go? Because... I got to a point in a bigger city that he never got to. You know, he did jobs mm-hmm. at ECW and WCW. He did jobs on house shows for Smoky Mountain. You know, he did all the things that you get to do, like you got to do as well 
TV work. Yeah. But he never he never got to where he should have been. One hundred percent agree. And so he was living vicariously through me. And then the cool thing is, I ended up getting him to be able to come out there. Oh you know, man, that's out there, you know? so. that was one of those things where I was looking forward to it, but I'm like. I know what he's told me. I know what Jimmy's told me. He's hyped this guy up. But, man, like with wrestling, you hear that so often. You meet these right. people after the fact, and they're just total downers, man. But, like, right. as soon as we met Ken, because I think it was me, you, and Sev, we met him and Scott. And, man, right. it was like we'd known these guys our entire lives. We made that full loop that weekend. It was nothing okay. but cutting up and making fun of everybody. And... In one loop, it's like he became our big brother like he was to you, man. That yeah. doesn't happen all the time, man. That's a rare thing. I know. And it, it made me feel like all my friends were being friends. And you oh, know, yeah. That to me, you, you rarely get that. I don't know if, I, you know, you've truly been in situations like this where you have to hang out with the friends of your wife's husband or she has to hang out with the friends of, you know, their wife. And it just doesn't click. Well, in this case, we were not a relationship, but we were a situation that it was really important for you all to get along because y'all right. had both. I loved y'all all, you know, and I was glad that it all clicked like it did. Had we been able to make that a faction of some sort, dude, you know? Oh, man. Man, that <laughs> there would have been money there if people would have been willing to pay it. Right, exactly. It was loosely a faction, but it was never able to be what a, what it should have been or could have been. Right, so. and we we tried. I know, like before, I hung it up the first time. We tried to make that trip up, but circumstances prevailed. But while things were riding high here, I know um, at some point my story will come out for like what was going on behind the scenes, like not at right. the shows, but when you weren't at the shows. How were you dealing with everything? Were you still feeling motivated or were you just kind of waiting for the ball to drop as it did? You know, a few months we hit that speed bump a little bit down the road and then we kept going. But were you enjoying everything outside of that or was it just kind of like waiting for the next show to happen to keep the high going? Totally, man. I mean, I was getting highs all kinds of ways, though, brother. Um, At that point, my band, The Greatest, which I moved to Nashville Mm -hmm. with, the best band I've ever played music with. We were nearing its crescendo in 2006. We broke up, okay. And then I was in random bands after that. Right. I would I would play on a hip hop album. I would play on on different albums. I would play for different people. I played for country bands. I played downtown. I would play. I was like a hired gun musician. I was yeah. playing as many shows as I could. And so around. 2005, my ex and I, we get back together. She moves to Nashville. Mm-hmm. We we buy a house. We have a kid, my son, Cash. I love him. He's the best thing that I... Growing up fast, man. And he's 14, dude, almost 15. Ooh, I feel old mind. now. I know, buddy. Around 2006, things are falling apart in the relationship again. My son is, is almost one, and... We have his birthday party, and then that was in October, and then by December, she and I are done. We broke up. Uh, she basically told me to move out. I was, again, 100% focused so much on the band and the music, and he was 
so little, and she was finding attention elsewhere. And I don't want to get into all that. Like, I no, said, you're fine, man. You're fine. We we split up again, and we got separated, and and officially ended up divorced. So one of the times we're doing studio work, and this guy he's doing everything. He's snorting cocaine. He's popping pills. He's doing anything. And so I had tried all the drugs you can name almost mm-hmm. already from my time in music. Whew. I had smoked weed. I had done cocaine, ecstasy, you know, A to Z, as the Shiki would say. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, the A to Z. And, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> there, there was this guy, and he, he's, he was in the studio, and I call him like studio vultures, kind of. They're dissimilar in wrestling. But he is handing out some stuff, and I sample some, and that is the last time I remember not being an addict. So it pretty much started from there on. I was in a bad point. My relationship had broken up. Right. My She had my son, my band, whom I put everything into. The Greatest had broken up. And I felt like, you know, Kenny was there, but I hid all this from Kenny. Yeah. And I was doing it all, man. And I would smoke coke to get up. I would do pills to go down. And that's like the old, uh, again, it all comes back to wrestling, but the old Roddy Piper saying, you know, it's like, you take the pills in the morning to get up, you take the pills in the evening to go down. You know, it just becomes a cycle. Exactly. So I would say up until the point that you and I rode to Virginia, I don't, you probably saw it. But I was eating pills, like, if I felt like a hair on me, I would eat a pill. Right, right. I don't like to say this, but I was drinking as well because the pills were better with booze. Um, Kids, that's not true, but it felt better to to kick them off with some booze. So I was drinking, and I'm sure you noticed it. Yeah, there were were little signs there, but I mean, let's be honest, too, I was... uh... Since I wasn't driving, you know, I was throwing a few back, too, because that's, that's what you did, you know? Exactly. But, you know, you were not mixing things. Right. Like I, was, I was doing. So I was chasing that high, and I got to the point to where I was addicted to cocaine, and I was probably addicted to painkillers at the same time. And I don't know if anybody out there, you know, needs to hear this, but you're not alone in that. People are there for you. Your Absolutely. Family, you know, there's so many ways to get help now. Cocaine is horrible. I, I hate that. But pills is the worst thing. You know, pain pills are the worst thing to try to ever come off of. Cocaine is out of your system in a couple of days. And as long as you don't keep doing it, you'll get over cocaine. But painkillers, yep. it's like two or three week deal, man. And it's the worst flu you've ever had. You can't sleep. Your legs won't quit moving. Have you ever had restless leg syndrome before? Oh, yeah. So imagine that 24-7. Oh, um, God, man. That, it yeah. drives me crazy with the short little spasms. But ugh. Yeah, and they, they have so many people you can get help from now. You know, it's a thing called methylation, I've learned, where painkillers modify your receptors in your brain. Yeah where you no longer make dopamine and and serotonin. And there's so many things that your body quits making Mm -hmm. whenever you become addicted to pill. 
And if you if you can't stop taking them, you are addicted. To That's the way it is. I hate to say that. It's so ironic that you mention that now. Um, I'm actually every morning before I go to work, I'm reading a book called Atomic Habits, and the yeah. section that I read this morning was actually talking about like the receptors in your body and how like you it used cocaine for you know for an addict, for example. It talked about how they get more of a rush from their senses by actually seeing the cocaine or seeing the mountain of powder than they do actually taking it. And then, like, yeah. the cue after the fact is, like, a downswing, whereas the, the uptick is when they actually see it before they actually take it. It's such a weird thing that it does, man. Like, I've heard so many different stories, but it sounds like everything all comes back to that point of coming off of it is the most difficult part. Well, and, and honestly, man, the biggest high you'll ever get is finding out somebody has some and mm-hmm. on the road to get it is some of the best. Now, between the time that I tried my first real hardcore stuff till the point that it, I leave Nashville, I will say this, I probably spent upwards of numbers five people say they make six figures i probably easily spent five figures on my head Dang. man yeah. that's insane um, it is man i never had any legal trouble right close several times i don't know why god didn't didn't make that happen I came i'm glad home. he didn't yeah well i came home and my friend was really bad on pain pills so literally, I leave, leave Nashville to come to Virginia. And Virginia, southwest Virginia, eastern Kentucky, northeast Tennessee, mm-hmm. southern West Virginia, that's like the opiate zone right there. That's like me leaving, you know, Iraq to land in Afghanistan. Oh, man. Uh, as far as a war zone. Yeah. So, and I knew all these people back in Virginia. So it wasn't hard for me to give them a call and say, what do you have? Right. And, and then my, my family found some things, some paraphernalia that I had met, kind of get, get some help. Mm-hmm. But I still had my foot, the addiction, and uh, my parents found some paraphernalia and it all came crashing down, dude. Oh, man. And, so from, and then I got some help and... You know, like I said, in every city, there is some sort of help for somebody. Yes, there is. If you find it. There's meetings. There's doctors. There's there's a lot of people that frown on the attic. But you know, and you can put my my shoot email in the in the liner notes of this. If anybody ever needs help, put you know, put my email in this podcast. I definitely will. Email me. You know, email me. I don't want anybody to feel like there's not help. There is. So. I found, I got help, I got a job, you know, living again. I met my wife again. I met Michelle, my now wife. I knew her from high school, and we got together and got married. And, I, you know, things aren't perfect, but things are, are good, man. Yeah, um, I understand that. As far and as that goes. <laughs> what, what was awesome is, I know, um, I, at one point, I didn't even know that you had... Um, had moved back and I thought you just kind of fallen off the face of the earth when I had stopped wrestling for a while you know it's like you lose touch and a lot of people just fall out until you come back in I'd kind of thought man I don't know what's going on I I wasn't able to get a hold of you but then you actually reached out to me and you wanted to I think it was part of your recovery process you wanted to make sure that we were all good on everything and that 
we were on the men together and I think we started keeping up with contact again after that. But like just the fact like you could tell by the tone and the inflection of your voice that there was a a genuine concern and a genuine want to make sure everything was good and everything was squared away again. Like, you know, you could kind of tell the light change from the old Jimmy that I knew, and I didn't even know how bad things were, to be honest with you, at that point. Oh, yeah, dude. When I moved back initially, I was starting a band again with another guy Mm -hmm. and, and and a drummer, and we were starting to play music in Richlands, Virginia, Claypool Hill, about 20 minutes from where we stayed with my parents. Okay. Um... There was more drugs there because, again, the drummer was addicted to drugs. He was needle drugs. Oh. So I was, like, thrown into the pit again with him. Now, I had not come clean at this I had not been clean at this point. This is just before. Uh, right, right. And so we were writing songs, and I, I came up with this idea that we could make money writing songs for wrestlers because we were, we were all three seasoned musicians that could – process some songs pretty quickly yeah so i had i had always been writing even in this depth of my addiction uh, i had always been writing and i wrote this song that i thought would be perfect for jeremiah plunkett and it was called the nashville knockout i remember that actually specifically for jeremiah and i said hey dude if you send me some money I'll write a song specifically for you and you can come out and you can own the song. And so long story short, he writes me, he sends PayPal to me, 150 bucks or whatever, because I didn't want to charge him too much, but I wanted some money for some pills and right. for some drugs. And so he sends me the money and we do write the song and we finish it up, but we can't ever, it's like so many things happen that end up causing it to look as though I screwed him over. And I sat on that horrible feeling. The guy that we recorded the song with, he fell off the face of the earth. Couldn't find him, and he had all the recordings. Oh, Um, man. I couldn't even let him listen to any of it other than a little bit of it on my phone. Yeah. And, you know, he's texting me, and he's like, hey, dude, what's up with the song? And I'm like, man... And I know it's just sounding like BS to him. I get it. And I'm like, dude, it's the guy. We're waiting on getting the tracks from the guy so we can make a copy of it to get the uh, promise to promise. And then at this point, he just writes it off. And I think he gets kind of hot about it. He posts some things on social media. I think buzzed up, said some stuff about it. And I deleted everybody, dude. I, I went way hardcore and I deleted and blocked almost everybody on Facebook from that right. And I left it at that. And then I got cleaned up. I got going, got married. And I I started to do what I was talking to you about. Now, Mm -hmm. I cleaned it up with you a lot earlier. But near the end of the steps, you have to make amends not only with the people you've harmed, but yourself. Yeah, and that's the hardest part. It is, dude. And coming up with yourself is the toughest, actually. But that's a whole other ball of wax. But I call up Funky, and I'm like, dude, how much did you give me? And he was like, it was 150. And I said, do you need any kind of interest on that? I would be glad to give you more than that. He was like, no, man. And I told him my whole deal. I was like, look, dude, I was was really bad in addiction right then. I spent it. The song, I think, caused all the bad things that happened with the song 
were probably more or less due to drugs. And I want to give you this money back. If you say there's interest on it, you name your price right now. Even if it's double, I'm cool because I, I want my friend back, you know? Yeah. Because um, Punky and I became really close just before I left. Yep, because uh, that was actually, I think, when we were at Saw, they split you apart from me because... I think I was the champion. I know you guys just talked about this recently on your Ask Wolfie episode uh, where I was the champion. You were managing me as Omar at that time, but they were getting ready to go to TV, so they put the title on Wolfie. They took the Omar character off of you and still had you as Jimmy Street, but they begrudgingly put me with you, and they put you with Plunky and Drew Haskins, and you were managing them, and I was kind of just on my way out after some... uh, booking issues with the powers that be at that time but yeah and it was unfortunate and i hated it but there was too many times that i stayed back in a federate in a promotion that i should have left with you but i didn't uh, it's all good i always tried to be up front with you about that. yep and I, that was the one thing that's why i never held any tension about that but there were some yeah. others that now, I won't name names. I'm not going to make this about me because we're going to get back right back into your story. But there were others that did leave with me or I left with them. And then, you know, come to find out month or two down the road, there's about five different knives in my back. But what can you do? Yeah. So you were always right. up front. And that was probably, like I said, the one reason I never held any grudges with you. So that was like always the biggest thing for me. Yeah. And I never wanted that to happen because... Ultimately, I knew that I didn't have any other bookings outside of NWA main event at that point. Right, right. Come to find out, DJ just thought I only wanted to work there. Yeah, that's... Weatherby, rest in peace. Absolutely. Uh, he was a great man. That was another reason for the fallout, just to give a little side story there for, you know, Saw again. The person that was booking created some fake tension between us, and I wasn't even allowed to go to his memorial to pay respects when he was booking me, and one of the only people that would book me in the area for one reason or another. So, never had an issue with him, but somebody created an issue, and, you know, but God rest his soul, he did a lot for me and never really got a chance to properly thank him for that. I remember... When he passed away, I was like the toughest man in Nashville shed a tear for one of the best. Yep. I'll honestly say that, you know, he, he truly was one of the best. And his kids, man, they're all over the place, but they are all, I feel like, have an element of him oh, yeah. somewhere in it, you know. Long, back to the story, though. Jeremiah Plunkett, I gave him his money back. Mm-hmm. I begged his, I asked him, I told him the whole deal, and I said I was sorry. And we're cool. Would I ever imagine that we are going to be like we were i doubt it just the way things are but i couldn't be more happy for him he's he's working for nwa you know the real one yeah and and i couldn't be more happy for him honestly he's he deserves everything that he's getting absolutely and i know he and i don't Um, talk as much anymore but the fact that he's finally getting some national recognition is very very long overdue hey man if if i would have picked the five best, in my personal opinion, there was a Mount Rushmore of pro wrestlers in Nashville at the time that I was there. Other than the bigger guys, the, the vets, right? I would, say, I would say Seven, Dyron, Jeremiah Plunkett, Drew Haskins, and the oh, Josephus. If I could pick yeah. five, you know, I know there's others I missed that are a little younger or a little older. The five best, in my personal opinion, at that time were, were you guys. So. 
But long story short, Jeremiah was cool, like I said. Rest in peace, Josephus. I feel like yeah. Josephus had a great chance in NWA. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy to see him doing well there. And then he was like a legit friend with Billy Corgan. I mean, that's yep. amazing. It's, a, it's such a crazy world. And I mean, even with the people from my church that knew him and grew up with him and having to be the one, like, because I woke up for the message from Seven about it. And it's like, that is one that you could have given me a lineup of people and I never would have expected that to be the one. And that, that broke my heart because, man, like, we'd fallen out. We hadn't seen each other in a couple years. Like, we just hadn't talked. But I was his first anything in wrestling, like, he managed Tony and LT Falk on a Saturday show at Stadium Inn while he was still training. I was managing Eric Hodge and another guy against them, and we did a little tease that he was going to get his hands on me, and you know, like that was it. From there, a month later, he had his first match, but his very first anything was you know with me, and it's like we would always see each other at the gym, or we would always joke about something. Man, it, that really messed me up for a while. I'm sure it did, man. And, and the cool thing is you have that, though. A lot of people, yeah. I remember, I'm going to tell a funny story about Joe. One of the things about Joe is I begged Porter to pay him or do whatever and get him to pay an event because I thought he and Steven yes. would have an amazing yes. angle with each other. I thought Steven and he would have been an amazing matchup that would draw money. People would come to see that, you know? And he never would. He was like, no, he, he's working for that Tony Falk, you know? And it's like, what are you going to do? That is that Nashville uh, triangle of pettiness. Right. Even though Tony and Mike were friends when they saw would saw each other. But. And even though other people on the on the shows were working for the other shows, you know? Yeah, yeah. Iggy. Give me the Iggy. Yep. Yeah. I don't know why we didn't just go down there and work. But well, we I know at that point, that. Tony and I had some heat, you know, because I wanted more, and he only saw me as the uh, the job guy to uh, guys that didn't even have real gear, so I had to leave and right. make my own way before I went back. But, man, that oddly enough, sense. my first match back with him was tagging with you against uh, Iggy and Carrie. And we actually, yeah, that, that was an impromptu thing because the the original guy I was scheduled with wasn't able to make it. So you had to throw yeah. on one of my singlets and go out there. That was a trip, man. I can't believe that ever happened, you know? Because, <laughs> like I said, for a pro wrestler, I'm a decent manager. <laughs> 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 Other than that, I, I, I don't belong in the ring. Um, so many of you guys do so much amazing stuff. And had I ever had the ability, it would have not been at that point. I, I would have needed much more time in the training to... Dude, I was, I can say for sure, I was always entertained by what you did, but (laughs) going back to everything and and getting the help, man, like we're going to come back to Kenny here because I, you know, unfortunately, spoiler alert, it's going to end up coming up on a sad note here, but man, I know we mentioned it earlier. He was like a big brother to all of us. Like, how was he like, was he like kind of giving you the kick in the ass as like a stern big brother or was he the supportive like man my shoulders here if you need to lean on it what was y'all's relationship like at, at that time well i hid it from him for so long and then i flaked on a show and was that the one uh, where where we were actually all supposed to ride up to virginia together or west virginia i'm yeah. sorry yep yeah that was it and only three of us I ended up making it actually right and i think for good reason he held it against me a little bit, and I didn't tell him the real reason why. I just 
Oh, I can't remember what I told him, but it was stupid. One of the regrets of my life, truly, you know, because he booked a lot of great guys on that show, and you were there, and Seb was there. I think Seb was there. No, there was. Uh, it was actually supposed to be me, you, Zach Hartnell, Josh Crow, Caden Sade, Chris Norte, and Sev. So we were either going to have to rent a minivan or get two cars, but it ultimately yeah. came down to me, Josh Crow, and Caden Sade of that group making it up there. And like, this will always be a day that sticks out in my mind because it's actually the day that my wife and I became like, we made it official that we were dating. So we did yeah. that. And then at six in the morning on three hours of sleep, I go pick these guys up. We make the eight hour drive up there. I wrestle twice on the show and win the tag titles with him in the main event. And then we make the eight hour drive back. It's like, yeah. oh man, but man, I, it's crazy to think that was the last time I actually saw him in person. He, I remember him saying in the back, man, I wish we, we could have had everybody up here because it would have been a hell of a stack card. I know, and I regret that so much, man, because, you know, ultimately what happens, but we just kind of fell apart at that point. Mm -hmm. We didn't keep in touch with each other as much. I would call him, and we would talk, but it was like it was not the same, and I, it was like I let him down, but he kind of knew something was up. Right. And he, he never brought up wrestling really much again with me man and i, I you know when i kind of told him everything he was like oh man i wish you would have explained that to me and i was like brother I, I wasn't ready to tell myself yeah bless you and that's a hard thing ready. too because uh, you know unfortunately i know with a lot of my problems which were nowhere near that you know it's like they think you're hiding something from them or it hurts them that you weren't able to, to communicate that to them. But like you said, if you can't communicate it to yourself or you're not ready to accept it yet, it, it does no good to tell anybody, man. It just kind of makes the burden even bigger or you feel like you're being a burden to that person. Right, exactly. And, and that's a great way to put how I was feeling. I mean, to be honest, man, if there's there's regrets in my life, I have a billion of them. Uh, but the main one I would say with Kenny is that, that I didn't explain it to him more. You know, Kenny was old school. He would catch me doing stuff. Like, he caught me, I think, doing some things, taking a pill or something. Yeah. He was like, you need to cut, cut that out, man. He was like, that ain't no good. He was like... I was like, well, how how do you not do it? He was like, I just outgrew that, man. I, I, I grew up, and I don't want to do that stuff. I never wanted to do that stuff. And then he was like, I, with all the medical troubles I have, I could get whatever prescription I wanted, but I, I know that I don't need that. I don't want that. He basically was like, dude, you're too old to be messing around with stupid stuff like that. And right. he was just that old school kind of way. Not that he didn't wasn't happy when I found some got some help and stuff, but he was a little more like, oh, put some dirt on it, get up and walk it off kind of thing. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that was his genuine emotion or that was just kind of like how he was saying it because he thought that's what you would expect him to say? Man, I don't know. That's a great question, brother. I, I know from my experiences with him, I feel like he would have said that maybe, you know, like tongue-in-cheek with a little bit of sincerity behind it, but also, you know, it's like, Come on, man. You know we're we're pulling for you, but I didn't I didn't know him as well as you did, unfortunately. But I just kind of feel like knowing his personality and the way we would joke around, you know, like that was my interpretation. Yeah. Dude, I, I've had conversations with him at three in the morning, 
and I'd call him and didn't realize I was calling him at three in the morning. And he would answer and talk to me. Oh, man. Hour. And he was like, what's up, brother? And I'm like, oh, dude, it's three. I'm so sorry. He was like, well, what's that? And I'm like, you know, just talking to him. And he was like so deep a guy and so understanding and honestly empathetic in ways that a big brother would be. But then at the same time, he didn't have the knowledge to talk to me about stuff like that or just thought it was something simple. But he noticed that there was a change in me. I told him things, you know, that I was doing and about to do and wanting to do. And he was like, you need to cut that shit out, man. You know, got to cut that shit out. He was like, I ain't no good. It was like a, an older brother, uncle, who really isn't doesn't have any knowledge about through addiction and recovery. Right. I, I think it was honestly what he thought he knew, honestly. I never thought about it from the perspective that you just offered, but I really feel like if he would have had any other advice, he would have given it personally. I, I could believe that 100%, man. Yeah. Kenny, a lot of people don't know this. Kenny went to Eastern Carolina University, and he he was going to be the starting quarterback. That team consistently beats Virginia Tech every five years. He played quarterback. He was a great quarterback. He then started wrestling. And after, high, after college, he started wrestling. I mean, from then on, he never looked back, and I think he worked like, you know, the warehouse jobs or something, but yeah, you know, work to feed his wrestling. Yeah. He worked to feed his right. wrestling habit. And he was one of those guys, you know, man, those diehard dude. Those, oh yeah. Those guy, you know, the Chris Michaels, I, I don't want to ever compare him to Chris because Chris, I think his career was a little more known. Yeah. He told Chris told me that he remembered Kenny from, from uh, Smoky Mountain. And that's crazy to think, you know, like that those two cross paths. But if I would have ever seen them work, man, that, God, that would have been a sellout from the locker room right there. Yeah. Kenny was always a mark for big guys. That's why he loved Devin. You know, we talked about Joe Stephus. So for him to like a littler guy, you had to be something special. And so, like, in your case, he really saw a lot in you. It was just my bitter attitude. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, he, you know, and, and, and Scott, his trainee, the guy he trained, Scott Rudder, Ninji, mm-hmm. you know, Scott was a little guy. Yeah. And those, Kenny was that, that nine, that, that total, t- you know, wrestler dude. And you don't meet those guys as much anymore, you know? That's true. It's hard to be that. <laughs> it was a special, special man. Like, uh, and just, yeah. it absolutely gutted me this summer when you told me that he had passed man but like what was it like for you I mean I know that's kind of like a a vague question but man like how did you process that because I I don't even like I don't know myself like I I shut off for a little bit like I just I got away from my family and I just kind of I shut off and I I can only imagine what it was like for you so you know I've had a lot of great friends and I mean friends not just friends I've had two great friends in my older days. Mm-hmm. Chris Tag, who was the drummer I played music with from the greatest on. He and I were playing in the band that was going to write the song for Plunky and stuff. Uh, he was the guitar player. Anyway, Chris died in 2016. I had gotten cleaned up, and he was still 
battling some things with alcoholism and he dies of a brain hemorrhage at 40 or at 39 years old. Oh man. Um, had a stomach ache and was throwing up and had been battling high blood pressure with no medicine to fix it. And yeah. His, his veins and arteries were, were weak and he throws up and pops the vein and dies a day later. Oh um, man. And that's, that was one of my, first best friends in the world. My second best friend in the world was Kenny Still. Yeah. I had texted him, was it Saturday or Sunday that I think? Saturday, I think. Mm-hmm. That I, maybe Friday, anyway. I know it was a Friday that I got the message from you. Yeah. I'd been telling him about my health thing, and, you know, we always text each other, and the last thing he texted me, he was like, I'm in a doctor's appointment. I'll call you when I'm out. And, you know, I love you, kiddo. After Josephus died, we made sure, you know, I, I texted you guys just immediately because yep. I love you guys. And after Josephus passed, he and I made sure to tell each other we loved him. If you don't have somebody in your life, you can tell like you love them. If that isn't your wife, you, you're not living. Yeah. So you got to have 100%. That you love in your life. And he says, love you, kiddo. And that's the last message that he sent to me. And I said, okay, buddy, love you too call you call me and he never made that call and then saturday i'm out shopping for mattress with my wife and i look on facebook when she's like trying out all the mattresses and, mm-hmm. uh, i see scott rudder i felt like a bullet or a lightning bolt came out of the sky and to read it as scott put it it was like this should, there should be an earthquake that's happening right yeah. You know, so to say how I processed it, it was like to see it, it was almost nonchalant. And I don't mean the way that Scott put it. What I'm saying is, is I can't believe you're gone, Kenny. Rest in peace, Ken. The machine's still at, you know. Yeah. And it was like, why did a thunder not just rumble? Why did a hurricane not come through? Why did some major crazy event not happen with the fact that Kenny is dead? Yeah. And. That I, I immediately pull up our, our group chat and I send it to you. And I was like, guys, if I'm reading this correctly, I think Kenny's dead. It's like, you know, you see the three little dots working and go away and then come back and go away. And then you guys reply, and, you know, I could pull it up if I needed to. But yeah. you guys are just like as floored as I am. Michelle was like, do we need to leave? And I was like, well, me leaving isn't going to accomplish the process of us getting a mattress. So I just walked outside and shed a tear and came back in. We bought the stupid mattress and we came home. She remembers when Chris died, how bad I was. We weren't married yet. But yeah. I, I was falling to pieces, man. I was, she was like, I'm so sorry. And I'm, I, I still cry thinking about him. You know, when the tribe gets smaller, when the tribe shrink, it's never a good thing. And it just so happened that at the same time, I was coming to Virginia because I was getting my son. And whenever I get my son, I always try to go to Virginia for like a week. Yeah. So I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, but my family is three hours up the road in Virginia. So whenever I get my son, I always go to Virginia and stay there for a week because, you know, I'm working from home and stuff. And it just so happened that I was able to get to go to his 
to his wake and his visitation. And man, you know, it was a blessing. And I, I leaned down and I kissed him on the forehead. And I don't know, man, I told him I loved him and I would keep his words alive and I would keep his honor. You know, wrestlers are weird, man. You know, Kenny always told me this. You know, you don't see wrestlers at funerals because they just aren't guys. They don't like to see their own be gone. Yeah. But I would say that he was wrong about that because there were so many of his guys that came out to pay their respect. And I remember standing outside, you know, there was a guy named Scott Stetchel and there was Aubrey Wright, Jamie Wright, uh, Tony Wright. You know, Scott was in there kind of being, uh, you know, he was like the guy everybody talked to. I didn't want to burden him. Yeah. Kind of holding everything together. Yeah. And I said, this is him. This is Kenny right here. All of us together, because I wouldn't know you if I didn't know Kenny. I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't know you. I said, so Kenny is right here. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't know Kenny, man, I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't know Seven. Because I would have never sought out Aaron Camaro to try to be on a show in Nashville. One person has that major impact, man. He did. And and it's a ripple effect that, you know, has, has caused me... A lot of funny, good times, you know. He's up there with, you know, Harley Race, you know. Oh, dude, I can only Im- I can only imagine him now with the jokes we made in the back. Him up yeah. there with Bert and Porter, just making oh, fun man. of the, the cheese at the concession stand, you know, or just know. whatever it was, man. I can only imagine. I know. But I, I, know. Can, I, I would have to assume, too, like, dude, if he were here, he'd be loving what you're doing now, especially with the podcast. Because, well, I mean, man, yeah. I feel like that would be right up his alley there. I, I, I'll be honest, bro. It might be the enlivening color with Ken Steele. Uh, honestly, it could easily be that. I've begged him to do a podcast. And he was just like, well, let me get some stuff figured out and we'll start doing it. Right. timing never lined up. But to be honest, man, you know, with the podcast, enlivening color with Wolfie D, it would have been Ken Steele. I've got a funny story to tell you about that, but, you know, Wolfie said yes. I got to know Wolfie the same way everybody knows Wolfie from Nashville Wrestling. Right. And I've learned this from Wolfie. Everybody didn't want to talk to him because either they had talked to him or they had heat with him or whatever. So I would talk to Wolfie in the locker room because I'm like, dude, this is freaking Splash. This is Wolfie D. Why is nobody talking to him in the wrestling locker room? Yeah. And... He was like, I would talk to him all the time, and I would be like, man, what do you think about this? Do you think this is a good idea? I did that. I said, well, you listen to this promo. Give me your opinion. And he would always give it to me 100%. No BS, straight up. That sucked. That was good. Here's what you can try. So Wolfie and I became friends through just that. Acquaintances, decent friends. So Wolfie and I became friends like that. And But I have no doubt in my mind it would be live and in color with Ken Steele if he were still absolutely man it would be every bit as entertaining as it is with what you have right now too and all these different stories I feel like that like we all see the stuff that happens in the match yeah it'd be cool to kind of know some of the like well maybe this went wrong or whatever but just hearing the back the back stories to things or the road trip stories that Wolfie's telling now like those are hilarious. Or, you know, like hearing the stories that your guests have told, like Ricky Morton or Jerry Lawler. But, man, 
the way Kenny would go off on his tirades in the locker room too, like if he got worked up and got into one of those stories, man, like yeah, I wouldn't be able to hold it together if I was on the on the other end of the line with him. Well, you know, there was that one time we were working a show that one of the whinier wrestlers who thought a lot of himself blamed me for him pulling a hammy or something because I didn't catch him like I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. And you know who I'm talking about. If you don't, I'll tell you later. But yep. he, he thought a lot of himself and he, he botched the spot and wanted to blame somebody for his messing up his spot. And I didn't catch him, so he hurt himself or whatever, and he starts going off. And I'm like, dude, Ken Steele would tell me to punch this dude in the mouth, but I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to stand up for him. Yeah. So I'm like, dude, if you're talking about me, just tell me you're talking about me. Don't talk about untrained morons that don't deserve to be in the locker room. And all this stuff, I said, if you're not talking about me, I said... You need to not look at me when you're saying this stuff. He was like, I was talking about Pooter. I was talking about Fatal. I was talking about all these other people. I wasn't talking about you. And I'm like, well, dude, I said, it seems like you're talking about me because I'm sorry that that happened to you. I told you I was sorry the second I didn't catch you properly. And Kenny was like, why were you even in that position to catch this battle? You know, yeah. why were you even in a position to have to do that? Or why was he even in a position to jump? Why was he doing a suicide dive weighing 250, 300 pounds, you know? You know, Kenny was like, I'd have punched him in the mouth. And I said, that's what I thought you would say. Yep. I'm not going to do that because I don't know that I can finish the fight. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he might have put a hurting on me and I don't want to deal with that. So I was not going to let him run his mouth about it. So, and then at that point, he shut up. But to get back on the subject of Kenny, Kenny... And Wolfie are very similar in that they have great stories and have gone a long time and tell the great stories. And there's a things I see here from Wolfie that I can hear Kenny saying, but I don't think anybody had the, the wit of, of Ken. Just the things that he would say, the imitation of Terry Funk alone. Yeah, is, just is, on the is, fly, is, off the cuff, man. It was right something right. else. Yeah, well, Sunday Fargo's ghost. I never, you know. Oh, but but Bertram, the cheese. You've got to get the cheese now, Bertram. Yeah, get the cheese, Bertram. Don't forget it. I remember when you and uh, Iggy busted all those chips up, and my one of my favorite jokes I ever said was, "Leave the floor chips for Bobby." (laughs) (laughs) Bobby says dibs on the floor chips. (laughs) Man, I will say. My biggest regret from that night was not having you hold on to that belt so he couldn't waddle up to the ring and snatch it and run off with it, but... I know, I know. Oh, man, that was he, such he, a good time. He, yeah, because he knew that I was staying and maybe he would have trusted it to stay with me. Right, you know? right. But he looking back, right. I should have stayed, but anyway... Man. Yeah, whatever. Man, I we're... <laughs> <laughs> well, we see how that all turned out, but we're we're good. Yeah. But dude, we're uh we're coming up on two hours here, man. And this has been not only an eye-opening experience, man, but I've been on an emotional roller coaster with laughing, like just emotional with the Ken Steele stories and just the impact he had on both of us. Like yeah. man, there's gonna have to be a part two and probably a three, four, and five down the road too. But 
as we get ready to to wind it down and go home on this one, man, are there any stories, anything you want to plug or anything you want to leave the audience with as we wrap up uh, part one here? If you need help, get help. Like I said, to tell Dyron to put my email in there. You know, I'm James Rock Street on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. I'm Jimmy Street. Typically keep that for friends. On YouTube, if you want to hear my music, it's James Rock Street on there. The other is the, the podcast I'm doing with Wolfie D, like we were talking about. He and I are having a blast on there, man. And you can tell, too. Yeah, I literally had the idea on the way a trip out. I was going to pick up my son. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I've got to do this now. I'm, I'm going to do it. I've done a lot of research about doing a podcast. I found that Anchor app and everything. Yeah. And I said, I, call, I called Wolfie up and I said, hey, Wolfie. And I go into this long spiel about why he needed to do a podcast. And I forgot to stop because he'd already said I'm in. Like, when I asked him, I said, dude, let's do a podcast. And he said, I'm in. And then I go through this long tirade of how he needs to do the podcast. And he was like, I'm in, man. I'm in. And I'm like, okay. I said, it'll need to be like this. And then I explained to him how it should be and what we should do. And he was like, yeah, man, I'm in. And so I said, but I got to have you be straight up. And he was like, that's the only way I would do it either. So he's been super cool he's been super open he's been honest you know he's lived a long career he's had seen the ups and downs he's been to the top and he's been to the bottom and we're going to cover all that um right now we're in the midst of 95 i think we've got a cool nation of domination guest coming up i don't want to say too much oh i can't wait for that one yeah it's not the rock i'll commit to that (laughs) he's a little busy (laughs) Um, right now yeah, he's got some things he's doing, but maybe sometime. We've talked to Ricky Morton, Jerry Lawler. Thank you for talking about that. We've talked to, so right now we've covered from 92 to 95. There's eight episodes, but we're working on nine on Thursday. And so it's live and in color with Wolfie D. We're at live Wolfie D on Instagram and Twitter. Live and in uh, living color with Wolfie D podcast on Facebook. And live and in living color with Wolfie D on YouTube. And we'll have check us out. You'll enjoy it if you like wrestling, if you like living, if you've never even listened to a podcast before and you just want to hear some interesting stories. Listen to that. You're like a, a brother podcast with us. Absolutely, uh, yeah. You guys were my first yeah. sponsor, so yeah, gotta gotta share that. the love, man. Yeah, ditto. So we've got some cool things coming up. Dyron and I are going to work on some things, I think, in the future. So, but yeah, I mean, as far as uh, stories or anything like that. I, I guess just when you have friends, don't hold things because you don't think they would listen. To you. Yep. Talk to the friend because I've gone through life and not talked about my pains and problems Same. to people that I could have and could have been a different path. But I don't regret anything. I'm glad you you brought me on the show. I thank you for that, man. I'm just I'm thank glad you. you had this time to carve out and do that. And again. Said we've been friends for it blows my mind to say over 10 years now but even in this conversation alone in this two hours I've learned so much more about you that I didn't even know and like it just it puts a lot more into perspective and makes me appreciate you as a person and our friendship that much more now 
Yeah, well, thank you, brother, and the same man. But I've I've kept some back for, for part two. So absolutely, yeah, we gotta gotta keep them coming back for more. So. We'll go That's ahead right. and call it here. We're going to have links to not only Live and In Color with Wolfie D in the show notes. We're going to have links to Jimmy's social medias. We're going to have his YouTube. We're going to have his email as well. And like he said, guys, help is out there. So please don't ever feel like you're alone. There's always somebody that's going to be pulling for you. There's always going to be somebody that's willing to listen. And I'm comfortable saying right now, the two of us are pulling for you too. So no matter what, you're not alone. And exactly, Jimmy... Exactly. Again, man, I just want to thank you for trusting me to come on the podcast and being so open and being so vulnerable. And, man, I can't wait to have you back again. Thank you, buddy. Love you, buddy. Love you too, man. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, man. All right, guys, that was another awesome episode right there. Jimmy, man, thank you again for everything. Brother, love you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for coming on and telling your story. Thanks for taking me on that emotional roller coaster with the Ken Steele stories. We love you, Big Ken. And guys, again, thank you for continuing to listen. Thank you for continuing to support. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for subscribing, for following us on all social media platforms. Thank you to our new sponsors. And guys, I can't wait to be back again with you next week. I know you hear me. If you love anime like I do, I've got a YouTube channel just for you. My voiceover coach, Elise Bowman, is an anime voice actress who interviews her fellow anime voice actors. Elise is an actress, TV host, and the voice of Pan on Dragon Ball GT, among other characters. She's got a YouTube channel, Anime Adventures with Elise Bowman, and on there she has over 100 videos where she has interviewed voice actors, Power Rangers, and even a few professional wrestlers, and all that sounds right up my alley. And there's a lot of other people that she's interviewed as she travels the country going to comic cons and different recording studios. Elise also features actors from the entire Dragon Ball franchise, My Hero Academia, Naruto, and so much more. And on top of that, there are exclusive panels that are only available on this channel from events like KameaCon 2, Con Live 2021, and so many more. You've got to check this out. See and hear voice actors behind your favorite characters and from your favorite anime shows. Go to youtube.com slash animeadventures and let me know what you think. Follow her on social at Adventures Anime and at Elise Bowman. She loves chatting with fans of anime. Hey, I know you hear me. And guess what? Elise and I want to hear from you too. Connect with us. Connect with us.